Volume Two, Part Seven of Herodotus's Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Histories, Volume Two, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by E. D. Godley. Volume Two, Part Seven. This is what the Therians say, and now begins the part in which the Therian and Cernaean stories agree, but not until now for the Cyrenaeans tell a wholly different story about Batus, which is this. There is a town in Crete called Oaxus, of which one Etarchus became ruler. He was a widower with a daughter whose name was Phronmine, and he married a second wife. When the second wife came into his house, she thought fit to be the proverbial stepmother of Phronine, ill-treating her and devising all sorts of evil against her. At last she accused the girl of lewdness, and persuaded her husband that the charge was true. So Atarchus was persuaded by his wife, and contrived a great sin against his daughter. There was at Oaxus a Therian traitor, one Themison. Atarchus made this man his guest and his friend, and got him to swear that he would do him whatever service he desired. Then he gave the man his own daughter, telling him to take her away and throw her into the sea. But Themison was very angry at being thus tricked on his oath, and renounced his friendship with Atarchus. Presently he took the girl and sailed away, and so as to fulfil the oath that he had sworn to Atarchus, when he was on the high seas he bound her with ropes and let her down into the sea, and drew her up again, and presently arrived at Thera. There Polymnestus, a notable Therian, took Phronine and made her his concubine. In time a son of weak and stammering speech was born to him, but whom he gave the name Battus, as the Therians and Cyrenaeans say, but in my opinion the boy was given some other name, and changed it to Battus on his coming to Libya, taking this new name because of the oracle given to him at Delphi, and the honourable office which he received. For the Libyan word for king is Battus, and this, I believe, is why the Pythian priestess called him so in her prophecy, using a Libyan name because she knew that he was to be king in Libya. For when he grew to adulthood, he went to Delphi to inquire about his voice, and the priestess in answer gave him this, Batus, you have come for a voice, but Lord Phoebus Apollo sends you to found a city in Libya, nurse of sheep, just as if she addressed him using the Greek word for king, Basilius, you have come for a voice, etc. But he answered, Lord, I came to you to ask about my speech, but you talk of other matters, things impossible to do. You tell me to plant a colony in Libya, where shall I get the power or strength of hand for it? Batus spoke thus, but as the god would not give him another oracle, and kept answering as before, he departed while the priestess was still speaking, and went away to Thera. But afterwards things turned out badly for Battus, and the rest of the Therians, and when ignorant of the cause of their misfortunes, they sent to Delphi to ask about their present ills, the priestess declared that they would fare better if they helped Battus plant a colony at Cyrene in Libya. Then the Therians sent Battus with two fifty-oared ships. These sailed to Libya, but not knowing what else to do, presently returned to Thera. There the Therians shot at them as they came to land, and would not let the ship put in, telling them to sail back, which they did under constraint of necessity, and planted a colony on an island off the Libyan coast called, as I have said already, Plataea. This island is said to be as big as the city of Cyrene is now. Here they lived for two years, but as everything went wrong, the rest sailed to Delphi, leaving one behind, and on their arrival questioned the oracle, and said that they were living in Libya, but that they were no better off for that. Then the priestess gave them this reply, If you know Libya, nurse of sheep, better than I, though I have been there and you have not, 
then I am very much astonished at your knowledge. Hearing this, Battus and his men sailed back again, for the god would not let them do anything short of colonizing Libya itself, and having come to the island and taken aboard the one whom they had left there, they made a settlement at a place in Libya itself, opposite the island which was called Aziris. This is a place enclosed on both sides by the fairest of groves, with a river flowing along one side of it. Here they dwelt for six years, but in the seventh the Libyans got them to leave the place, saying that they would lead them to a better, and they brought the Greeks from Aziris and led them west, so calculating the hours of daylight that they led the Greeks past the fairest place in their country, called Irasa, at night, lest the Greeks see it in their journey. Then they brought the Greeks to what is called the Fountain of Apollo, and said to them, Here, Greeks, it is suitable for you to live, for here the sky is torn. Now in the time of Batus, the founder of the colony, who ruled for forty years, and of his son Arcelaus, who ruled for sixteen, the inhabitants of Cyrene were no more in number than when they had first gone out to the colony. But in the time of the third ruler, Batus, who was called the Fortunate, the Pythian priestess warned all Greeks by an oracle to cross the sea and live in Libya with the Cyrenians, for the Cyrenians invited them, promising a distribution of land, and this was the oracle. Whoever goes to beloved Libya after the fields are divided, I say shall be sorry afterward. So a great multitude gathered at Cyrene, and cut out great tracts of land from the territory of the neighboring Libyans. Robbed of their lands, and treated violently by the Cyrenians, these sent to Egypt together with their king, whose name was Edicron, and put their affairs in the hands of Apries, the king of that country. Apries mustered a great force of Egyptians, and sent it against Cyrene, the Cyrenaeans marched out to Eressa and the Thestis spring, and there fought the Egyptians and beat them, for the Egyptians had as yet no experience of Greeks, and despised their enemy, and as a result of which they were so utterly destroyed that few of them returned to Egypt. Because of this misfortune, and because they blamed him for it, the Egyptians revolted from Apries. This Battus had a son, Arcasilus, and on his first coming to reign he quarrelled with his brothers, until they left him and went away to another place in Libya, where they founded a city for themselves, which was then and is now called Bars, and while they were founding it, they persuaded the Libyans to revolt from the Cyrenaeans. Then Arcasilus led an army into the country of the Libyans who had received his brothers, and had also revolted, and they fled in fear of him to the eastern Libyans. Arcasilus pursued them until he came in his pursuit to Lucan in Libya, where the Libyans resolved to attack him, they engaged, and so wholly overcame the Cyrenaeans that seven thousand Cyrenaean soldiers were killed there. After this disaster, Arcasilus, being worn down and having taken a drug, was strangled by his brother Larchus. Larchus was deftly killed by Arcasilus's wife, Eryxo. Arcasilus's kingship passed to his son Battus, who was lame and infirm in his feet. The Cyrenaeans, in view of the affliction that had overtaken them, sent to Delphi to ask what political arrangement would enable them to live best. The priestess told them to bring a mediator from Mantinea in Arcadia. When the Cyrenaeans sent their request, the Mantineans gave them their most valued citizen, whose name was Demonax. When this man came to Cyrene, and learned everything, he divided the people into three tribes, of which the Therians and dispossessed Libyans were one, the Peloponnesians and Cretans the second, and all the islanders the third. Furthermore, he set apart certain domains and priesthoods for their king Battus, but all the rest, which had belonged to the kings, were now to be held by the people in common. During the life of this Battus, these ordinances held good, 
but in the time of his son Arcesilus much contention arose about the king's rights. Arcesilus, son of the lame Battus and Ferratim, would not abide by the ordinances of Demonax, but demanded back the prerogatives of his forefathers, and made himself head of a faction. But he was defeated and banished to Samos, and his mother fled to Salamis in Cyprus. Now Salamis at this time was ruled by Evelthon, who dedicated that marvellous censer at Delphi which stands in the treasury of the Corinthians. Ferratime came to him, asking him for an army to bring her and her son back to Cyrene. Evelthon was willing to give her everything else, only not an army, and when she accepted what he gave her, she said that it was fine, but it would be better to give her an army as she asked. This she said, whatever the gift, until at last Evelthon sent her a golden spindle and distaff, and wool, and when Ferratime uttered the same words as before, he answered that these, and not armies, were gifts for women. Meanwhile Arcesilaus was in Samos, collecting all the men that he could, and promising them a new division of land, and while a great army was thus gathering, he made a journey to Delphi to ask the oracle about his return. The priestess gave him this answer. For the lifetimes of four Battises and four Arcesiluses, eight generations of men, Loxias grants to your house the kingship of Cyrene. More than this he advises you not even to try. But you, return to your country and live there in peace." but if you find the oven full of amphora, do not bake the amphora, but let them go unscathed. And if you bake them in the oven, do not go into the tidal place, for if you do, then you shall be killed yourself, and also the bull that is the fairest of the herd. This was the oracle given by the priestess to Arcesilaus. But he returned to Cyrene, with the men from Samos, and having made himself master of it he forgot the oracle, and demanded justice upon his enemies for his banishment. Some of these left the country altogether. Others Arcesilaus seized and sent away to Cyprus to be killed there. These were carried off their course to Snidus, where the Snidians saved them and sent them to Thera. Others of the Cyrenians fled for refuge into a great tower that belonged to one Aglomachus, a private man, and Arcesilaus piled wood around it and burnt them there. Then, perceiving too late that this was the meaning of the Delphic oracle which forbade him to bake the amphora if he found them in the oven, he deliberately refrained from going into the city of the Cyrenians, fearing the death prophesied and supposing the title-place to be Cyrene. Now he had a wife who was a relation of his, a daughter of Alazir, king of the Barsians, and Arcesilaus went to Alazar, but men of Bars and some of the exiles from Cyrene were aware of him and killed him as he walked in the town, and Alazir his father too. So Arcesilaus, whether with or without meaning to, missed the meaning of the oracle and fulfilled his destiny. While Arcesilaus was living in Bars, accomplishing his own destruction, his mother Ferratime held her son's prerogative at Cyrene, where she administered all his business and sat with others in council. But when she learned of her son's death at Bars, she made her escape to Egypt, trusting to the good service which Arcesilaus had done to Cambyses, the son of Cyrus, for this was the Arcesilaus who gave Cyrene to Cambyses and agreed to pay tribute. So on her arrival in Egypt, Ferratime supplicated Ariandes, asking that he avenge her, on the plea that her son had been killed for allying himself with the Medes. This Ariandes had been appointed viceroy of Egypt by Cambyses. At a later day, he was put to death for making himself equal to Darius. For, learning and seeing that Darius desired to leave a memorial of himself such as no king ever had, Ariandes imitated him, until he got his reward, for Darius had coined money out of gold refined to an extreme purity, 
and Ariandes, then ruling Egypt, made a similar silver coinage, and now there is no silver money so pure as is the Ariandic. But when Darius heard that Ariandes was doing so, he put him to death, not on this charge, but as a rebel. At this time Ariandes took pity on Pharatime, and gave her all the Egyptian land and sea forces, appointing Amasis, a Meriphian, general of the army, and Badris, of the tribe of the Pasagarde, admiral of the fleet. But before dispatching the troops, Ariandes sent a herald to Bars to ask who it was who had killed Arcesilaus. The Barcaeans answered that it was the deed of the whole city, for the many wrongs that Arcesilaus had done them. When he heard this, Ariandes sent his troops with Pharatime. This was the pretext, but I myself think that the troops were sent to subjugate Libya. For the Libyan tribes are many and of different kinds, and though a few of them were the king's subjects, the greater part cared nothing for Darius. Now concerning the lands inhabited by Libyans, the Adermachidae are the people that live nearest to Egypt. They follow Egyptian customs, for the most part, but dress like other Libyans. Their women wear twisted bronze ornaments on both legs, their hair is long, each catches her own lice, then bites and throws them away. They are the only Libyans that do this, and who show the kings all virgins that are to be married. The king then takes the virginity of whichever of these pleases him. These Adiramachidae extend from Egypt to the harbour called Plinus. Next to them are the Gulligamae, who inhabit the country to the west as far as the island of Aphrodisius. In between lies the island of Plataea, which the Cyrenians colonized, and on the mainland is the harbour called Menelus, and the Aziris, which was a settlement of the Cyrenians. Here the country of Silphium begins, which reaches from the island of Plataea to the entrance of the Syrtes. This people is like the others in its customs. The next people west of the Gilligame are the Aspistae, who live inland of Cyrene, not coming down to the coast, for that is Cyrenean territory. These drive four-horse chariots to the greater extent than any other Libyans, it is their practice to imitate most of the Cyrenaean customs. Next west of the Aspitae are the Aushisae, dwelling inland of Bars, and touching the coast at Euhesperidae. About the middle of the land of the Aushisae lives the little tribe of the Bacales, whose territory comes down to the sea at Tauchira, a town in the Barsian country. Their customs are the same as those of the dwellers inland of Cyrene. Next west of these, Aushisay, is the populous country of Nasimones, who in summer leave their flocks by the sea and go up to the land called Aguila, to gather dates from the palm-trees that grow there in great abundance, and all bear fruit. They hunt locusts, which they dry in the sun, and after grinding them sprinkle into milk and drink it. It is their custom for every man to have many wives. Their intercourse with women is promiscuous, as among the Masagete, a staff is placed before the dwelling, and then they have intercourse. When a man of the Nasimones weds, on the first night the bride must by custom lie with each of the whole company in turn, and each man after intercourse gives her whatever gift he has brought from his house. As for their manner of swearing and divination, they lay their hands on the graves of the men reputed to have been the most just and good among them, and by these men they swear. Their practice of divination is to go to the tombs of their ancestors, where after making prayers they lie down to sleep and take for oracles whatever dreams come to them. They give and receive pledges by each drinking from the hand of the other party, and if they have nothing liquid, they take the dust of the earth and lick it up. On the borders of the Nasimones is the country of the Sili, who perished in this way. 
the force of the south wind dried up their water-tanks, and all their country, lying in the region of the Sirtis, was waterless. After deliberating together, they marched south, I tell the story as it is told by the Libyans, and when they came into the sandy desert a strong south wind buried them. So they perished utterly, and the Nashimones have their country. Inland of these to the south, the Garamantes live in wild beast country. They shun the side and fellowship of men, and have no weapons of war, nor know how to defend themselves. These live inland of the Nasimones. The neighboring seaboard to the west is the country of the Maque, who shave their hair to a crest, leaving that on the top of their heads to grow, and shaving clean off what is on either side. In war they carry shields made of ostrich skins. The Sinops River empties into their sea through their country from a hill called the Hill of the Graces. This hill is thickly wooded, while the rest of Libya, of which I have spoken, is bare of trees. It is twenty-five miles from the sea. Next to these Mackay are the Gindanis, where every woman wears many leather anklets, because, so it is said, she puts on an anklet for every man with whom she has had intercourse, and she who wears the most is reputed to be the best, because she has been loved by the most men. There is a headland jutting out onto the sea from the land of the Gindanis. On it live the lotus-eaters, whose only fare is the lotus. The lotus-fruit is the size of a mastish-berry. It has a sweet taste like the fruit of a date-palm. The lotus-eaters not only eat it, but make wine of it. Next to these along the coast are the Maklis, who also use the lotus, but less than the aforesaid people. Their country reaches to a great river called the Triton, which empties into the great Tritonian lake, in which is an island called Pla. It is said that the Lacedaemonians were told by an oracle to plant a settlement on this island. The following story is also told. It is said that Jason, when the Argo had been built at the foot of Pelion, put aboard besides a hedicomb a bronze tripod, and set out to sail around the Peloponnese, to go to Delphi. But when he was off Malia, a north wind caught and carried him away to Libya, and before he saw land he came into the shallows of the Tritonian lake. There, while he could find no way out yet, Triton, the story goes, appeared to him and told Jason to give him the tripod, promising to show the sailors the channels, and send them on their way unharmed. Jason did, and Triton then showed them the channel out of the shallows, and set the tripod in his own temple. But first he prophesied over it, declaring the whole matter to Jason's comrades, namely, that should any descendant of the Argo's crew take away the tripod, then a hundred Greek cities would be founded on the shores of the Tritonian lake. Hearing this, it is said, the Libyan people of the country hid the tripod. End of Volume 2, Part 7